If you have a Bible, we are in Revelation chapter 19. Um, and I am going to read the whole chapter. Uh, sorry about that responsive reading. I didn't have the underlying portions in front of me. So when y'all started when y'all started speaking back to me, I kind of got afraid for a second. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a flash of fear that came across my eye for just a moment that I, I, I was reading something different than you were, and uh, but it's all good. Right? We all we made it through it. Um, praise be to God. Thank you, uh, David, for putting that together. Um, David uh, does most of not all of our liturgy now. And that's something he puts together, and uh, so uh, that's a wonderful thing for him to do every week, and thank you, David, for that. Um, And hopefully you, um, you know, uh, those, those, we've been doing those uh, digital hymnals, I think, I can't remember how long we've done that, every week for two years, three years maybe, uh, every week we put that together, and uh, I know a lot of churches do bulletins and stuff with information and, and, uh, you know, about the church, things like that, or, or announcements and stuff, but you know, we think that is such an important thing to do every week is to have that there for you. That you would know the music before you walk in this door. That you will know what the responsive reading are. That you will know the, the sermon text. And that you can have sermon notes. And all those things we think are important for you. So please be encouraged by that. Um, and please use it um, to help you. Uh, so Revelation 19. I'm going to read this. And then we'll open this up. I'll open this up in prayer before we get into the sermon Revelation 19 starting in verse 1 after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated at the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that flew directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on a horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. And with it, with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, the, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the, on the horse and of the birds who were, gor- were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and... Um, Lord, we thank you for this passage. While it's got language in it that is difficult to understand and language, Lord, that is frightening to read. Lord, we pray, Lord, as your word says here, these are the true words of God. These are your true words. To encourage your church, to challenge your church, Lord, to to move us to faithfulness, to move us to worship. Lord, at the end of this teaching, at the end of the 30, 45 minutes in this word, that you would lead us to worship you and praise your name. Lord, we want to pray for our sister churches in our neighborhood. We want to pray for Westwood uh, Church down the street, Lord. Pray for them. Pray for Pastor Dave and, 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 and Pastor Ben uh, and the other staff at that church, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would use them to be faithful to your word. And Lord, they would continue to be a gospel witness the surrounding neighborhoods and people. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much for what you're doing and what you will do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's always been an interesting chapter of the Bible, Revelation 19. And um, this is the first time I've ever preached this passage. And I'm going to preach it in a way that kind of seems odd that I would talk about this particular theme. But I think it's important, and I think it, is, it definitely comes out of this passage. Um, I heard something recently that a pastor did in a church in Knoxville for kids, and I'm going to do the same thing because I think it's a good idea. For you kids who are here, I know you'd wish you were down in the children's area playing and coloring and, and doing a Bible lesson downstairs. Unfortunately, we're not doing that. We can't do that. But I want you to think about a few things, a few words, okay? You focus your mind and... When you hear me say it, I want you to maybe ask your parents about it later. But I want you to think about the word hallelujah, which I read like four times, I think. Hallelujah. The word love and the word beauty. So hallelujah, love, and beauty. And ask your parents at the end uh, when you go home what those mean and how they relate to the passage, okay? Hallelujah, love, and beauty. So the, 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 the title of this sermon is An Ocean Without Shores or Bottom. An Ocean Without Shores or Bottom. Uh, the main idea is hallelujah for Christ's church has been refined in the world, made ready for Christ's glorious return and victory over his enemy. 
So I want to talk about, I know, I don't know if this was like posh when you were in high school, but when I was in high school, I, it was the thing to do, especially if you were in a youth group with True Love Weights, right? True Love Weights. And you would, you would pledge at maybe like a youth conference. Uh, maybe if your church was big enough to have like a bunch of kids, you'd have that like, maybe that message or talk every year about True Love Weights, waiting until you were married have intimacy to have sex there was a, a, a girl who wrote an article a blog called I don't wait anymore I don't wait anymore so basically when she was 25 she took off her true love weight ring and threw it away and basically said, I'm done with this and you may think well what is she gonna do like go out and just sleep with whoever she wants actually that's not her response she saw the issues of the true love weights campaign and she kind of asked the question What's it waiting for? Like, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for a, a good husband? A good wife? Is that what we're waiting for? Is that the whole point of Christian uh, talking about uh, this issue? Is it to wait for a good husband? That if you wait, if you don't sin sexually, that God's going to give you a good husband or a good wife. That was kind of the thought process. It was almost like a deal that you made with God. God, I won't do this, and then you will do this for me on the, on the side. Teenagers by the thousands signed cards and pledged that they would wait. And I'm not saying there was anything wrong with that. I mean, when encouraging kids and teenagers not to fall into sin is a good thing. But I think the problem was it didn't go all the way. It didn't, it didn't tell you what you truly should be waiting for or why you're waiting. Teenagers were taught to, to wait and that God would provide the spouse in good time. Grace Thornton, she wrote, she said, You're right, God, they say. We're not satisfied in you yet. We will put you first, and then you can bring us a husband in your timing. But many of them, if they're honest, will tell you that time has passed, and it's wrecking their view of God. If this is who God's supposed to be, then he's tragically late. Where's my husband? Where's my wife? I took the pledge. I'm now 28, I'm 29, I'm 30, I'm 31, and yet I'm still single. Where's the, the husband and wife that I was promised? I waited. God's not fulfilling his side of the bargain here. Teenagers were sold on a deal, not a savior. See, it was the same issue with the, uh, the Israelites during the time of Jesus' life. What do they want? They wanted something from him, right? They wanted more miracles. They wanted more signs. They wanted more food. They always wanted something from him. They didn't really want him. They came, Jesus came for his own. He came to rescue his sheep. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want to do miracles for you. He doesn't want to do fancy signs for you. He wants to show you that he loves you. That his heart is far more beautiful than the food that he made or the miracles that he did. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, probably one of the most difficult verses in the gospel he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is Jesus saying? He's not saying don't love your father or mother. What he is saying is that he is the treasure, not a husband or wife. So the problem with true love waits is it never said who the true treasure was. 
The treasure is not the husband or the wife. The treasure is Christ. That's why you wait. You wait because you love Christ and you know that Christ loves you and you know Christ will provide for you and care for you out of his wisdom and out of his love. He is not a solution to a problem. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is life itself. Jesus is. He loves you more than your father or mother loves you. That's why Jesus said that. He says, I will love you far more than your mother or father could. Jonathan Edwards in 1740 preached a sermon to children in his congregation called to the children, August 1740. That's how it was titled. It's like a 15-minute sermon that he gave to just children. And he said, he said, that the, he said the first thing that he, he said to them was that children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all, above all things in the world. Children ought to love the, Lord, love, the, love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. Why? And he gives six reasons why children should love the Lord above all things, including their parents. And the verse that he used was Matthew 10, 37, the one I just read. He gives these six reasons from that passage why children should love Jesus more than anything else in life. And this is the first thing he said. This is his first reason. He said, there is no love so great or so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Jesus Christ. There is no love so great or so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Jesus Christ. Amen. What's so important about that passage is, is that Christ's love it's far more beautiful than anything this world has to offer. See, when we tell G children about Jesus, we just tell them the story, right? He died on the cross for you. But there's so much more to it, right? Jesus loves them more than their mom and dad could possibly love them. We never say that, do we? Jesus loves you. Not loves you or will love you, but loves you. He loves you. Jonathan Edwards said, His love is an ocean without shores or bottom. Christ's love is boundless. It can't be measured because it's too big. Jesus is far more romantic for his own than any Disney story or Jane Austen novel. He's far more romantic. He cares far more and loves you far more. The gospel is a romance story. Christ Jesus came into the world to save his own, and he will intercede for his own, and he will return for his own. If you are in Christ, you belong to him. His love for you and me and us is unmeasurable. What did, Jesus, what did Paul say in Ephesians 3.18? You may comprehend with the saints the breadth, the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge itself. So what does that have to do with Revelation 19? It has everything to do with Revelation 19. The, Christ, the love of Christ. With the context, what we, what, really, the first five verses of 19 can really kind of go with 18 and probably could have been preached last week, but here it is in 19. So the great prostitute of Babylon, right, we talked about last week, right, the, 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 the great prostitute who allures and seducts the world, including the church. And what does God say to his church in 18? Come out of her, my children. Come out of her. Don't be swept away with her. And then fall into her judgment that will come. Which is interesting that because this idea of Babylon and her seduction is really a, a threat to the church. It's a threat to its spiritual growth. And really you can kind of define it as a tribulation. Her, 
her, her actions and her, her passion to, to basically drink the blood of the saints is a threat to the church. And that's not something that will just somehow happen at the end of time, but it's always been true for the church. The church has always had to deal with Babylon and her passion to destroy the church and to tempt the church and to cause the church to suffer. And, we, and we, if we go back, and I'm not going to read it, but if you go back to Revelation 2 and 3, we get reminded of this, of certain churches that were in great tribulation or hours of trial and how Christ told them to be steadfast, to be faithful under trial. There were groups of people that represented the world that wanted to crush these churches in Asia. In Revelation 7, 13 through 17, we see that image of, of, the, of the multitude of saints wearing white gowns coming out of the great tribulation. It says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is interesting because I just read about Jesus who had a robe dipped in blood, that Jesus washes his saints, his church, and makes them white and pure in the blood of the Lamb. It says that in the vision in Revelation 7 that they're before the throne of God. And they're serving him day and night. There's a new priesthood. These saints that have suffered and gone through tribulation because of the Babylon have been rescued out of it and are now serving God in his, in his presence day and night. It says that he will shepherd them with his presence. That God will shepherd them in, with his presence. Ezekiel 37, 27 through 28. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, but my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The Lamb will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. Christ the Lamb will shepherd his people. God will provide for them and, and shelter them. And it says in Revelation 3 9, talking about the church, I think in, in Philadelphia saying that the world will cause you to suffer, they will want to crush you, but I will provide for you, I will protect you, and it says that they will bow before you and know that I love you. My presence with you, my shepherding of you, my helping you and providing you through this tribulation, the world will recognize finally that you are God's people and that I love you. And that is the whole point of 19, that we get to the point where Jesus returns and there's something that happens that is significant and it causes hallelujahs in heaven. And that is Christ's love for his own. And that's like the big main point, that Jesus loves his own to the end. That Jesus loves his church, his sheep, to the end. So in verse 1 through 5, we see, Hallelujah, for the corrupted influence of Babylon has been removed. Hallelujah, for the corruptive influence of Babylon has been removed. And you see this in verse 1 through 5. And you get these... Um, First off, hallelujah, it's only mentioned in the New Testament in Revelation 19, and it's mentioned four times. Hallelujah, which is a word, is a uh, Hebrew transliteration for praise God. Praise God. Praise Yahweh. To praise Yahweh. There's a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Why are they crying out, Hallelujah? Because God's judgment of Babylon. 
And it says that God is right, is, 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 um, he says, so salvation and glory and the power belong to our God. Why is salvation and glory and the power belong to our God? Because the judgment of God is true and righteous. Because his judgment is true and righteous. God is a righteous, right? God is righteous and true. His judgment is right. That's where the people have a problem with God, and especially some of the judgments in the Old Testament. They think that God's judgment is unfair, that God is actually not right in his judgment. But God is right. He's righteous. He's just in his judgment. His judgment is true. It's not wrong. It's not false. It's true. There's no injustice with God's justice. That's not true in, America, in the world, right? There is injustice, but God does not make a mistake in his judgment. It's not like he lacks evidence in his judgment either. Or that he's prejudiced in his judgment. God is not any of these things. He is true and righteous in his judgment. And because he's true and righteous in his judgment, all salvation and glory and power belong to him. Which is the opposite of Babylon. Because Babylon believes that they are the ones that provide salvation, right? That they're the idol, they're the gods that provide salvation for the people of the earth, and they are for the kings and for the merchants and for the seafarers. That he, that Babylon's the one that provides salvation, and that's not true. It leads to destruction. Babylon has stolen glory. God's glory is true and right and proper. They Babylon misuses power, where God uses power for good and what is true and and righteous and that's why salvation and glory and power belong to god not babylon and so he judges the great prostitute who has been corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality she's been alluring people away from the love of god alluring them away Kings and merchants and shipmasters and the people who dwell on the earth, they mourned and they wept at her destruction, right? We saw it multiple times in 18. They're crying, they're weeping from afar, her judgments. Why are they weeping? Because all the luxury and pleasures she provided them were now all gone. Completely taken away. Productions of greed, productions of loss, production, productions of lust, Productions of pride were certainly all gone. And what happens? As they weeped and mourned, the heavens celebrated them being removed. You think of all the things that, that what I just said represents. Production of greed, production of lust, productions of pride. What would be included in those categories? Hollywood? Fashion? corporations, government and political institutions, entertainment industry, adult entertainment industry, all gone. Gone. How would you respond to their destruction? Would you weep and mourn that those things were taken away, those corrupting institutions, those corrupting influences? Or would you celebrate and worship? Now, that, that question is so important because it defines who you actually serve, who are you really faithful to. Are you faithful to the world or are you faithful to Christ? The destruction of those things must lead to corruption. Is that celebratory 
reality or a reality that leads to mourning and weeping. It says that through this destruction of Babylon, that God avenged the blood of his servants from her hand. Again, Jesus Christ cares for her own. He cares for his church. The world hates Christ. The world hates his own. Hates the church. And Christ will avenge them and give them justice. We will see the conclusion of Christ's avenging work in the last part of Revelation 19. Babylon is a continual threat to the church. It killed them. It persecuted them. We were introduced to that with the church of Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia. If you've ever, if you read anything in the news, you know the Asian church is continuing to be suffered, continue uh, suffering, continue to be persecuted and killed. That is the continual threat of Babylon. The church, uh, Babylon tempts his church. We think of the church in Pergam, uh, Thyatira, Laodicea. All these churches that struggled with false teachings, they struggled with being uh, uh, kind of allured away from faithfulness. You think of the Western church, American church especially, we are always under threat of not persecution, but temptation. Hallelujah when Babylon is taken away and removed. That corrupted influence is completely gone. And we see that the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God and said, Amen, hallelujah, for the judgment of Babylon, the removal of godless corruption from the earth. The great enemy of the church has been defeated. Even Christ, I think, believe here in verse 6, cries out and speaks and says, Praise our God. All his servants who fear him, great and small, were resilient to the ends. They were resilient. They, they, they dealt with temptation. They dealt with the struggle of sin. They fought it. They struggled with the persecution. They struggled with the tribulation, but they fought against it and remained faithful. They feared God above all things. They served God above all things, and so it was worth struggling. It was worth fighting against sin and persecution. The, the, the next point here is hallelujah for the church has made herself ready for her king. And this is where I want to spend probably the most time talking about because I really think this is like the heart of this chapter. So we see again a new, another celebration of a great multitude in heaven. It says that many multitudes, many waters, strong and mighty thunder was heard with this celebration. Now what were they celebrating? I believe that we're seeing, we're, we're being prepared to see a new revelation. What is that new revelation? Is that a revelation of word? But something will be presented that's been waiting to be presented. It says that Almighty has begun to reign. God has now begun to reign, realizing that God always reigns, right? He's timeless. He is God. He's always reigning. But in the creative reality in space and time, he has now begun to reign. Why? Because the world has been defeated. And so now he's begun to reign. Judgment has come upon Babylon. And so now he is reigning. We see this in Revelation 11 and 15, similar, similar words. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, ha he shall reign forever and ever. He has glory. Look what he has done. 
His kingdom, the kingdom of the world, has now become his kingdom. And it talks about this marriage feast. In verse 7. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She has prepared herself. What does that mean? The next, the next clause there, the next phrasing there, is that it was granted to her to close herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We call that a, uh, a passive verb. That the, uh, the subject is not doing the action. The, the one who, there's someone else providing the action, and it, she does not close herself. It was granted to her. God has granted to her to clothe herself in this linen, this bright and pure linen, which is representing righteous deeds. So her preparation is not something that, the, this is representing the church, the church does not prepare itself as if we, on our own, can somehow work our way to righteous living. God, and really, if, if we go back to um, Revelation 7, 5, 15, Therefore they belong to the before the throne of God, and he, they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shepherd them with his presence. That God will be with his church to the end. God's presence and the righteousness of his saints is by the righteous. God's presence is with his people. And because God is with his people, they are righteous. Well, obviously, God does this through the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, which is given through Christ, the Holy Spirit protects her and prepares her for this revelation, for this reveal. This bride, which is being ready to be presented, is not something done completely on her own, but the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is with her, and it prepares her. It clothes her. This is a beauty makeover. What was once what was with muddy and dirty and unpleasant to look at will then become the most beautiful thing in the earth by the Holy Spirit. It will regenerate people. It will convict them of sin. It will empower them with spiritual gifts. It will testify that they are indeed a child of God. It will lead them to faithfulness. It will make them fruitful. It will nurture them in resurrection life. It will guide them into truth. And it will transform them into the image of Christ. If the Spirit did not come, we would be completely empty. All of Christ's work on the cross would have been completely ineffective. We would still be lost if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit is the continuation of Christ's love for you and His own. If Christ would have died on the cross for you, rose, rose from the dead, went to heaven, and the Holy Spirit didn't come, His love for you would have ended. But He continues to love you through the Holy Spirit. Christ's love is still with you. The same love that died for you is still with you. B.B. Warfield calls Christ's death the voluntary endurance of an unutterable anguish. He put himself in murderous hands to redeem rebels according to the plan of God, to rinse muddy sinners clean and adopt them as his children and to love them to the end. He never stops loving you even though you keep squirming to get free and scrub yourself clean on your own. He still loves you. 
Even when you think you can do it better, he still loves you. Even though you sometimes forget him and completely write him off, he still loves you. Christ loves you then, he continues to show his love for you. Jesus talks about you to his Father. He speaks for us. He defends us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 33-34, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Why? Because Christ stands and speaks for you. He continues to be, you're continued, every one of you, if you're in Jesus, continue to be refreshed in the eyes of God. Even the moment after you sin, you're still refreshed in the eyes of God. Why? Because of Christ. He loves you. He says, that's my child, and he's mine or she's mine. And that never stops. And that never goes away. When we sin, Christ pleads, reminds, and prevail, prevails upon his Father that we belong to Christ. This speaks more to the love of Christ, not the coldness of God. That Christ loves you. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. To the utmost. What does utmost mean? The comprehensive, complete. That Christ loves you to the end. Not when it's when you're good, not when you've done well in your Bible reading, or when you come to church every Sunday for a month. He always loves you. He never stops. We need, to the, we need a utmost Savior because we're utmost sinners. Christ is able to save to the utmost. You and I will be ready because Christ loves you so much. That's why you'll be ready. Not because you are good people, but because Christ loves you that much. That's why you'll be ready. His heart is drawn to the areas of our lives that are the darkest and the most shameful. He will purify every crevice of you. Every sin that you struggle with, He will purify. Because He loves you. We cannot sin our way out of His tender care. John Calvin says, He turns the Father's eyes to His own righteousness to avert His gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by His intercession He prepares a way and an access to us to the Father's throne. Christ is pulling us by power and His love and He'll never disengage from us. He continues to bring us back to His heart. Because why? Because He loves you. He loves His own. He loves His church. Do you realize this? This is a this 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 happens. That as you pray for your children, if you're especially your parents and you pray for them, you know Jesus prays to his Father for you. He prays. That's how he's intercepting. He is telling his Father that these are mine. As you and I walk in this world surrounded by distractions and pitfalls and temptations, Christ is praying for you to the Father that you will be ready that you will be made clean, that you will be made purified, that you will be sanctified, that you won't fall into these temptations and you won't continue to fall in these pitfalls, that you will be made whole and you will have victory over sin. Jesus prays that to the God Almighty, the Father Himself, for you. Because He loves you. He loves His own. To be conscious of this end, the day of your revelation, the reason for your redemption, that you're a work of art, ready to be revealed as radiant. That Christ, that God will finish, finish what He started until the day of Jesus Christ. 
that all, that all, by God's grace on you, that you will be made ready. Third point here is, hallelujah, for God has called people to the feast. God has called people to the feast. Blessed are those who have been summoned by God Almighty. Now, I think what's happening in this passage is a little confusing. You get this bride feast. You're, okay, well, the church is the bride. I get that. But then it talks about these invited people. Who are the invited people? I think what I believe is going on here is a continuation of talking about the church and that it is now it is summoned and called to this feast. I mean, think of Matthew 22, 8-14 when the the parable of the king who had the wedding feast and those who were invited didn't come, right? And so he sent out his servants to go and invite all the, the, the villainous, the dirtiest people he could find and invite them to the feast. The, the king is summoning them and inviting them and calling them to join. And blessed are those who have been summoned by God Almighty, who have been invited to the feast. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been called to the feast. Blessed are you. Blessed. Hallelujah. For you have been invited to the feast. He will gather from all over the world to come to the feast. And it says that his word is true. His word is true. God's word is true. These words are true. Do you trust God's word? Do you believe his word to be true? Do you believe that living for Christ and being faithful to Him is the most important thing that you can do in your life? Not become rich or successful, but to be in Christ. Do you believe that to be true? Those who are called already have the testimony about Christ. Those who have the testimony have a prophetic role. If you have Christ, as Ditton talked about on Thursday, if you have Christ, you have the gospel, you are a missionary and a herald of the gospel. Just like the angels talked about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, you have the gospel about the risen king. Herald that message. The fourth point is, is hallelujah for Christ has returned. Christ has returned. So really we don't really get this Christ returning until verse 11. That, that heavens were opened and behold a white horse, faithful and true, comes out of heaven. And the one sitting upon it is faithful and true. He judges in righteousness and makes war. This is a different image of Jesus here. Riding on a white horse. Riding in, in, in a scene of conquering. Victorious. And his judgment that he's about to bring, is again like God's judgment, is righteous and true. His eyes are flaming fire. There's a diadem on his head. Many names written that no one knows, which is an interesting phrase. That means that God, Christ, who is God, is so, so amazing and so wonderful that even getting knowledge of God, comprehensive knowledge of Christ, is something that no one of us will ever experience. That Christ is so wonderful and so in-depth that he even has names that no one will know. Talk about the glory of Christ. And he's wearing a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Going back to John chapter 1. He is the Word. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. 
His church, and I believe this is his church, those who are riding with him on these white horses. I don't believe these are angels because most of the time in Revelation, the mentioning of linen and robes and white robes is usually associated with the church, not angel. I think one occasion in Revelation it speaks of an angel wearing a white robe. So I think this is the church riding with Christ. And I think you can get caught in the image like, are you saying that we're going to ride on white horses like ready to go battle with Jesus? I think that that would be taking this imagery a bit too far. But I think one thing we have to be, consider ourselves is Jesus is the only one with a sword. We don't have swords. And the other thing I think it's, it's wanted to, to speak to us that we are united in Christ to the end, that we are with him, that we're following him, that we're arranged in white, pure linen, that we have been purified and cleansed, and that we also join with Jesus in his victory. And he's ready to judge. The sword's coming out of his mouth. He strikes the nations. He rules with an iron rod, he trends the winepress. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And again, I don't know if we're supposed to say that the, the sword coming out of his mouth is an actual sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, or literally Jesus could judge the world by speaking just a word. Just like God created the world with his words, that Jesus could also judge the nations with his words. The last point is, hallelujah, for Christ's day of victory has come. For Christ's day of victory has come. This is the last few verses here. The great feast of God, which is talking about birds basically gathering and eating the flesh of a lot of different groups of people. Free, slave, small, great. The judgment of the world, the judgment of the people of the world who do not belong to Christ, who are not marching with him, or riding with him, those who do not belong to him will be judged with the beasts and the false prophets. And I love the way that this is phrased, right? You have this army of the beasts, right? The false prophet. They have these kings and these mighty men on horses, right? Marching into battle. And Jesus says, it doesn't even tell you what happens. It just says, and they were captured, right? It's so great. They were just seized. Which pretty much says, like, they come riding in, and Jesus just says a word, and they're just demolished. They're defeated. He just simply speaks. And they're thrown alive. Those little words like there really help give you the imagery here. They are thrown alive in the lake of fire. And the rest were also judged. So the, false, the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire alive to be judged by God for eternity. And the rest were also judged. If you don't belong to Christ, you will be judged. I'm going to end with this. I'm not, I don't have time to read the, the um, quote I was going to read from John Bunyan. But John, Jesus says to his disciples before he gets crucified, he says... You know, you're my own, and I will love you to the end, right? When we talk about love, you know, a father loves his, I mean, a husband loves his wife. The husband is the, is the, is the one who is, is the subject of the loving. He's loving. The object of his love is his wife. He's, that's his beloved. And Jesus loves you. He loves his own. He loves his church. So what does that mean? That Of all the things in the world and all the things in the universe that God and Christ created, whom does he prize amongst all of those things? The meanest, the weakest, 
and the poorest. That's who he prizes above all. That's his beloved. That's who he died on the cross for. That's whom he persevered with and interceded for in the present. And that's who he will come back to save. He prizes you more than all the world. You cannot be made unhis. You're always his. He went to the cross for you. He'll love you to the end. Through the sins, through the temptations, through the struggles and the fears. He has no prenup. There's no prenup uh, document written that if you break all these different requirements, you're unhis. There is no prenup. There is no exit strategy for Christ. He will love you to the end, to the ends of your lives, to the ends of your sins, to the ends of your temptations, to the ends of your fears. He will love you. And that is a hallelujah moment. Isn't it? That Christ will love you to the end. He will love his own to the end. He will endure, he endured judgment for his own. He endured judgment for his own. So his own don't fall into judgment. But for those who do not belong to Christ, he will judge. So you have to ask yourself the question. What is more appealing? Babylon, the world, or the heart of Christ? Babylon will not love you to the end. If you're not with Christ, the end is judgment. If you're with Christ, he will love you to the end. He'll never stop loving you. He'll never unlove you. He will always love you. Even through the temptations, even through the struggles, even through the fears, even through the sin, he will love you. And he will always love you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I am so thankful that, Lord, you sent Jesus into the world to save us. That we have a Savior, Lord who says about himself that he is gentle and approachable. The God of the universe, the, the, the Christ Almighty, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names, about him is that he is gentle and approachable. That he loves us to the end. And all of us in this room, we have made mistakes. We have said things we shouldn't have said. We have thought things we shouldn't have thought. We have done things we shouldn't have done. All of us can say amen to that. But what's also true is that if we're in Christ, Christ will love us to the end. He'll never stop loving us. He'll never stop interceding for us to the Father. He'll never stop pleading for us, praying for us. Hallelujah, Lord, that we have Christ. And if anyone here who doesn't have the love of Christ the appealing beauty of the love of Christ, Lord, that you would open their eyes, you would open their hearts, you would open their minds to the truth of Christ Jesus and that they would be saved. And they would experience and know the love of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.